Well, at this point, I would normally go back over the four pillars of biblical authority, but since we're on the same night and we've already done that, we'll just get right into this uh, particular lesson. Uh, one of the most difficult issues in understanding communication and thus authority is what we call inference. Uh, and some have become so disenchanted with abuses of inference that they've just about given that up altogether as a reliable way to understand anything. I would say, though, however, that that's an unwarranted overreaction and it's impossible to bear out consistently. And the reason is that inference is a necessary part of all communication. We've already made the point communication happens by indicating somehow, telling people, showing people, and implying things you expect people to get, and uh, inferences are just the conclusions. If we ask that question, what is an inference, it's any conclusion we draw from given information. Now, who here doesn't use inferences? Who here doesn't draw inferences? We all draw conclusions from the information that is given. And uh, the question then is not whether inferences are warranted, the question is, are they reasonable? Are they legitimate? Are they contrived? Are they uh, forced? Well, we don't want that, but we want them to be reasonable and warranted and legitimate. So an inference again, any conclusion that we draw from given information, uh, inferences, and th this comes from, let me, let me just show how common this is. This is from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Inferences are commonly drawn by deduction, which by analyzing valid argument forms draws out the conclusions implicit in their premises, by induction, which argues from many instances to a general statement, by probability, which passes from frequencies within a known domain to conclusions of stated likelihood, by statistical reasoning. They're just, they're just talking about the fact that this is what everybody does. Uh, in, in all forms of uh, logic, induction, deduction, and, and uh, so on. And, and again, just to remind you that uh, the communicator implies and the receiver infers. And so uh, sometimes you hear this is an implication. Well, what, what that's trying to say is that God as the communicator has implied something He expects us to get. And uh, when we get it, we have inferred that that is the way we're supposed to be thinking. Uh, and this comes from uh, Richard Paul Linda Elder's Miniature Guide to Critical Thinking. It's not about the Bible at all. But they say, quote, all reasoning contains inferences or interpretations by which we draw conclusions and given meaning to data. Uh, so, no reasoning takes place without drawing conclusions, without inferences. Just try it. In fact, any conclusion that you draw about communication is going to be drawn by an inference of some kind. You have no way to escape this particular issue. So statements and examples usually come with the expectation that we draw further conclusions. So if we see a statement in Scripture and that statement's consistent with this statement over here and over there, we put the information together. The question is, what conclusion are we supposed to draw from that? Uh, or here are some examples that God shows that, that He wants. Um, what are we supposed to do with that? How, how are we supposed to draw conclusions about that? That's going through the inference uh, process. 
But I like to show that, uh, and we think about the question, you know, are inferences uh, binding? And again, I've had people say uh, inferences uh, cannot be bound on people because it's just somebody's interpretation. Uh, I want to show a couple of examples, but first of all, just notice that you know, context has to determine the, the answer here uh, because not all conclusions are equal. And I don't want to leave the impression that just because somebody draws a conclusion about something, that that necessarily means that everybody is supposed to draw that conclusion and that's binding on the whole world or something like that. You have to look at the context and we're going to try to make our case that this is the way we should be thinking about something and why. Uh, but uh, we have to keep uh, making sure that we're, we're looking at the context properly. So uh, a couple of examples that I think will illustrate that uh, all Christians believe that some inferences are to be bound. And so let me ask you this question just to start with. Why are you a Christian today? Why are you a Christian today? Um, I don't see your name in the Bible. Now, what I mean by, you might say, well, my first name's in the Bible. I said, well, my first name's in the Spanish Bible, you know, whatever. Uh, but I don't see your full name in there. And, and what I'm saying is you know that if your name's in the Bible, it's not really talking about you specifically. So what I mean by that is that you look at the Scriptures and somehow, some way, you decide, you conclude that what's being said here applies to you, Right? Anyone who is a Christian today is a Christian because of the acceptance of the implications that all people of all places and all times ought to be Christians. Why should we be a Christian in 21st century America when the Bible here, when the text we're reading was written 2,000 years ago? And you might say, well, doesn't Paul say this in... Thessalonica, or doesn't he say that to the Romans? Yeah, he said that to the Romans. What makes you think he said it to you? Or Peter on the day of Pentecost, you know, repent and be baptized. Yeah, well, Peter said it to the people on the day of Pentecost. What makes you think that should travel 2,000 years to 21st century America over time and space and culture and language and apply specifically to you or anybody else? The only way you're going to get from there to here is by inference. There's no other way to do it. You're going to gather the information and you're going to look at that and you're going to decide that that information is supposed to transcend all time and, and come to all of us. And we're all supposed to, to think this. But you know that that's not the case with everything that you read in Scripture. Anybody here building an ark? You know, I mean, God gave a command to Noah, but you don't look at that command and say, well... God gave a command to build an ark, so I guess everybody needs to go out and build an ark. Because context, you know, determines that that's simply not a command that's supposed to transcend time. But there are other commands that you look at and say that is supposed to transcend time. Why? Because what you're doing is you're gathering information and you're drawing conclusions about that information. You are engaging in the process of inferring. And there's no way around that. If you're a Christian today, it's because 
you believe in inference. And, and that, that goes to the specific commands, as we said a moment ago. That goes to specific commands. You could pick up any epistle and you can say, Paul wrote this in the book of Ephesians or Colossians or Philippians, and this is what we ought to be doing. Why ought we to be doing that? He wrote that to the Philippians. Well, because it's clear that Paul intended this to... You see my point? There's no way to go through the process without engaging in an inference. So if we're going to disparage inference... We're pretty much cutting off our own legs here in terms of, of being able to make any applications. Because everything you read in the Bible, I can say, no, the context of that, he's talking to the Ephesians. He's talking to, the, you know, we have to infer that it's to be taken beyond that particular time. Secondly, let me ask you this question. What is the greatest commandment ever given? Greatest commandment ever given. What is it? Well, turn over to Matthew 22. I'm confident that you know the answer. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Why would you say that's the greatest commandment? Well, because that's what Jesus said, right? Okay, so in Matthew 22, 34 and following, the, the Pharisees uh, heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. They gathered together and a lawyer asked them a question, verse 36, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus answered in verse uh, 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Okay. So Jesus said that was the greatest commandment. Now let me ask you this question then. What makes you think that it's still the greatest commandment. Because if you look at the context, what's Jesus talking about? In verse 40, on these two commandments depend what? The law and the prophets. He's talking about the law and the prophets. He's not, he doesn't even mention the new covenant here. Nor does he mention the idea that it's supposed to transcend time and space and be the greatest commandment ever for all people of all times. He doesn't say that. If you think that, you have inferred it. Now, I think we ought to think it. <laughs> I agree, we ought to infer it. My point is simply to show that that is an inference that you make. And isn't it interesting that Jesus himself, when he's asked that question, what's the great commandment in the law? He doesn't say the greatest commandment is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Or the greatest commandment is, you shall not steal. Well, why not? He doesn't even mention the Ten Commandments there. The greatest commandment is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. But in Deuteronomy chapter 6, when you read that whole context, never does it say in that context, this is the greatest commandment. Even that is inferred from the overall context of what these commandments do. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do you realize that that's only found one place in the Old Testament Scriptures, in a fairly obscure place, in Leviticus 19 and verse 18? And it, it, it's just, it doesn't say, this is the second greatest commandment. It doesn't say anything like that. If you still think that's the second greatest commandment today, after all that time and everything else, you have done so 
by an inference. Now, do you think inferences are important? I do. I think inferences are the greater part of all communication. We do not communicate without it. And that's the point I want us to understand. If we disparage inference, we're, we're knocking out our ability to make applications. And uh, that makes for a very hollow Christianity. Well, there's a lot more. So, let me give some more examples here. Uh, you, notice in uh, Galatians chapter 5, here's this list of sins uh, that we know as the works of the flesh. And uh, it, it's interesting to me in verse 19, the deeds of the flesh are evident, <laughs> uh, he says. And then he names immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousings. But then notice the phrase, and things like these. Now, what does that mean? How are we going to make an application to things like these? So you ever heard anybody say, well, we can't condemn anything that's not specifically given, that's not specifically condemned. What is Paul doing here? Things like these. Is he not implying, indicating, that there are things that he does not specifically mention here that fall under the category of the works of the flesh. And what that means is it's up to us to figure some of that out. That we have to engage the mind and try to figure out. Now, is it possible that we misidentify something or misapply? Yeah, that's possible. We have to be very careful about that. But that doesn't change the fact that he said things like these, which indicates there are other things that fit the category of the works of the flesh that are not specifically mentioned. Now, look over in Hebrews chapter 5. And this will, this will even tie back into that point. The writer is wanting to discuss things uh, about Melchizedek. And he says, uh, I'm going to have to go back and talk about first principles. In verse 13, of Hebrews 5, everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant, but solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Senses trained to discern good and evil. If something is explicitly stated, then what discerning really has to take place? You don't have to discern something that's, that's explicitly given. It's, it's just there. You don't have to discern whether or not murder is wrong. Clearly, it's now what you might have to discern are particular applications of that, and we can determine whether or not that's wrong. We might look at something like abortion or whatever and say, is, is, does that fit the category of this? And then discern between good and evil there. We have to do that. And if something, uh, you know, to, to discern means that we're applying reason. We're thinking it out. We're thinking it through. We're drawing conclusions based upon principles. And so discerning good and evil is vital to our growth. And I think that's what he's indicating here in Hebrews chapter 5. Um, so, once again, inference becomes a vital part 
of what it is that we're engaging in. There's no other way to discern without inferring things about right and wrong, good and bad, good and evil. I think it's interesting when you think about the expectations of Jesus. I'm uh, thinking about, uh, first of all, in Mark, the 22nd chapter, 23 through 33, and I won't read all of that right now. But you recall when the Sadducees came to Jesus uh, with, they didn't believe in the resurrection, and so they brought this hypothetical situation. What if a man uh, marries a woman and he dies, and you know, then the brother marries the woman? So they're using the Leverite law of marriage to suggest that maybe seven brothers have all married the same woman. They all died in order. So in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And Jesus told them, you err not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. And then he makes that point, have you not read, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. What Jesus is pointing out there is something that really comes by implication from the Old Covenant and the, the Scriptures there. And that is that if God makes promises to men like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, why did He make promises to them for them only to die and never actually experience the fulfillment of them? With the indication being that they're going to experience the fulfillment of the promises. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. The indication is what? They will be raised. There is a resurrection. That's the only way the promises will find their complete fulfillment is through resurrection. So the trajectory of Scripture shows there will be a resurrection. Jesus expected them to know that, even though it was not explicitly stated like that. He expected them to know that. Same thing in Mark, the seventh chapter, uh, same idea. You recall there when the elders uh, uh, were fussing about the uh, the disciples, rather, the Jews were fussing about the disciples because they weren't washing their hands according to the tradition of the elders. And uh, so they're requiring something there. The law particularly did not require. Uh, and by the way, I think washing hands before eating is a good tradition, but uh, it's, not a, it's not a law of God. And, uh, but Jesus challenged them by, by asking them, why do you neglect the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And you can, you can imagine what they're thinking. at that. What, what, are we, what are we neglecting here? What, what command of God are we neglecting? What Jesus does is He pulls out the command, honor your father and mother. And He says, what you're doing is you're taking your stuff and you're saying Corban, which basically means this is dedicated to the temple. This has been dedicated to God. And in the process of dedicating everything you have to God, making this irrevocable vow to God, you're dishonoring your father and mother because when they are in need, you're not taking care of them. So for the sake of doing this, you're neglecting something else God said over here. Well, when you read the Old Testament and you see honor your father and mother, where does it say there that honoring father and mother specifically means you got to take care of them when they're older and need financial help? doesn't specifically say that. But Jesus chastises them for not knowing that, for not understanding that, or at least not practicing it. And that, again, came through implication. You could think about the Ten Commandments themselves. You know, the nature of the Ten Commandments 
You know, one of the dangers of approaching the Scriptures as a checklist is that we tend to just look at it, uh, you know, the checklist fashion and we say, okay, it says don't do that, so as long as I don't do that specifically, everything else around that I can do. And we might be missing something really important. So think about, for example, in uh, Matthew 5 when uh, Jesus makes the point, uh, you know, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. Well, that obviously is one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, you shall not murder. But uh, in verse 22, I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you're good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. What's he saying? Don't just look at the commandment not to murder and say, well, as long as I don't technically commit murder, I can do everything else. <laughs> because you're missing the implications of what these commandments were about. Uh, same thing in verse 27. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Um, you can say, well, I technically didn't violate that commandment. But there was a principle that stood under that commandment that you violated. And, and Jesus expected people to understand that, even in the Ten Commandments. We could think about Jesus as the high priest and the necessity and the change of law in Hebrews, the seventh chapter. Uh, you know, when you think about, by the way, uh, when you think about the nature of typology, and this is its own series of studies. Uh, foreshadowing, type, antitype, and so forth, and Hebrews picks up on that very strongly. Think about how important implications and inferences are in typology, you know, in types and shadows. And, and here is one of them, the idea that Jesus would be the high priest. Well, how could He be the high priest if He's not from the family of Aaron? Because God was very specific about that. Remember, we talked about that last night. Only the family of Aaron would be the high priest. How could Jesus be the high priest? And the point uh, that he makes down in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 12, for when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of the law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. You go back into the Old Testament and you'll not find a statement that says, now if you're from the tribe of Judah, you shall not be a priest. God didn't specifically say not to be priests if you're from the tribe of Judah. What He said was, the priests are going to be the family of Aaron. And again, the rebellion of Korah is a good example. Korah was a Levite even. But he wasn't allowed to be a priest because he wasn't in the right family. God is the one who made those distinctions. And God expected people to understand that. So the point that the Hebrews writer is making is that if Jesus was going to be the high priest because he was from Judah and not from the family of Aaron and, and nothing was said about them being priests, in order for him to be a priest there had to be a change in the law. And so the law changes with Christ so that He becomes the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's, that's the argument that he's, he's making through here. And I think, you know, we could, we could show a lot more here, but I think one of the, the biggest ones that they missed 
was the very fact that Jesus was expected to be seen as the Messiah. Uh, how is it that these, these very learned people uh, knew the Scriptures, they could quote the Scriptures, they knew, and yet they missed the most important feature of what the Old Testament was intended to do, and that was to bring them to Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John 5 and verse 39, you search the Scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life and these are they that testified of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. So He's telling them, you missed it. You missed the point of the Scriptures, the very Scriptures that you think you know so well, the very Scriptures that you think are going to bring you eternal life, but you missed the point. They testify of me, and you don't believe. You see? The greatest implication of all was that Jesus Christ is the one who brought about the fulfillment. And yet, they missed it. Now, we said a little, back, a little bit back, and the other two things just to kind of mention here would be the concept of examples and then principles that, uh, that flow from that. And I won't uh, go into great detail here except to say that, um, remember that with examples, you know, this, this is not all that big of a book. Uh, I mean, there's a lot here. But God could have revealed a whole lot more that He didn't. And what that indicates to me is that when God has given an example of something that we know He likes, He wanted it to be here for a reason. And if He wanted it to be here for a reason, then I have to seek out that reason and ask, what, what am I supposed to learn from this? What should I know from this? What should I do as a result of this? And it may be that it's an example of something that I can't repeat. I, there's, I can't repeat the examples of spiritual gifts for, you know, that are found in there, so I, there's not much I can do about that. But I do like to ask very simply, when I'm looking at an example, is there something comparable in my situation to that example? In other words, do we have similar circumstances? And secondly, am I capable of doing it? And if I am, my next question is simply going to be, why wouldn't I want to? I mean, sometimes when people ask questions like this, is that binding? Is we, it's really like asking, do I have to? <laughs> Do I have to? And then I, I'm, my problem at that point becomes, I, I think there's some attitude things we need to talk about at that point. Because if I know God likes this, and I know it's, it's similar to what I'm doing, and I know I'm capable of doing it, what would make me look at that and say, no, I don't want to do that. I want to do something else. So, you know, I have to look at examples and ask, why would God put this here? And what does He want me to learn from it? And principles are drawn from that. A principle is a fundamental truth from which other behaviors are derived. And there are people I've heard uh, who will kind of chastise or despise inferences and then turn around and say, but we live by principles. But do you realize that there's no application from a principle unless you have inference? They go hand in hand. Uh, you're deriving these principles from the examples and statements and so forth that we find in Scripture so that then you know what you ought to be doing and how you ought to be living. That's inference. That's inference through and through. 
And so again, principles become an important part of what we're doing. Now, I just say, you know, what, what about abuses? And, and um, I'll just say this, you know, deal with the abuse. Um, don't denigrate the communication process. We, we, we argued earlier that uh, God values the process. He gave us minds to think, to reason, to think things out and through. He, he values that process. He wants us to utilize that process to use our minds to draw conclusions and make applications. Uh, and, you know, somebody, I, I've heard people say, well, only commands are binding. And I'll just let this one sit here for a moment and ask you this question. How did you draw that conclusion? Well, think about it. What, what command in Scripture says, you shall only bind commands? I don't know where that's stated anywhere. Uh, so if that's what you believe, you have to conclude it from other information, which means you're using inference to say we can only bind commands, which seems a little bit self-defeating. All right, and the, the idea here is simply that God expects us to draw reasonable uh, conclusions. And I think, you know, when you think about the nature of interpretation, and, and we really haven't even addressed the interpretive processes so much, but simply recognize the importance of the communication process itself and what's going on here. But context and sound thinking really are the, the most important parts of any interpretation that we might work with. Common sense even, what we might say. And of course people say, well, the problem with common sense is it's not very common. Um, and maybe that's the case, but God expects us to try. He expects us to think and reason and draw reasonable conclusions, not forced, not stretched, not uh, you know, trying to abuse it, but simply uh, gather the information and ask, what does God want us to conclude from this, and where do we go with it? And so, uh, I leave that with you to, uh, to think about the overall process. Tomorrow morning, uh, Lord willing, we'll talk a little bit about the nature of uh, God's people and uh, as I said, I want to use instrumental music as kind of a case study uh, to talk about uh, some of these, these issues and how it's all kind of pulled together. Um, but go ahead and take your songbooks out, and we'll sing the song here in just a moment uh, that was chosen. And certainly, uh, while this has not been uh, you know, really formal or anything, I, I do think it's important for us to think about our relationship with God and uh, any opportunities that, that we can offer you uh, if you need help, prayers of the congregation, you need to obey the gospel, whatever uh, that may be. Let's go ahead and stand and sing the song that was chosen. <laughs> 